episode 191, Telehealth Industry Updates. Today, I speak with Nate Lachtman, a partner at Foley and & Lardner and chair of the National Tele-Industry Team. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. I saw one definition of telehealth as the provision of healthcare remotely by means of telecommunications technology. The HHS defines telehealth, and this is a mouthful, as the use of electronic information and telecommunication technologies to support and promote long-distance clinical healthcare, patient and professional health-related education, public health, and health administration. Today, I speak with Nate Lachtman, who is going to untangle that web of words. Nate is a partner at the law firm of Foley and Lardner, and he is chair of the National Tele-Industry Team. And we talked today about telehealth goings-on that you in the industry really should know about. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Nate. Thank you, Stacey. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we start really getting into telemedicine and what is going on in the industry at this time, just in case someone's coming in cold, how would you define telemedicine? And to a certain extent, that is still an issue because we have people defining telemedicine as, no, it's a real-time audio-video connection, whereas other people define telemedicine as, no, we can use remote patient monitoring or patient-centered apps or asynchronous store and forward based services to deliver medical care. And without a unified acceptance of a definition of telemedicine, what becomes difficult, it's harder to do translational or qualitative studies or meta-analysis of multiple clinical studies to determine trends and efficacy and cost and benefits because they're using this tool in different ways. The parlance that I've heard is the asynchronous versus synchronous kind of debate. The asynchronous being that it's not a FaceTime. The two parties are not engaged at the same time. In other words, I send you an email and you get it later and then you respond and I read it later. Whereas the synchronous is we're talking together right now. The established gold standard of telemedicine modality still is real-time audio video. But that's due in large part to the Federation of State Medical Board's 2014 model uh, telemedicine guidelines that they put out to other state medical boards where they don't mandate real-time audio video, but they encourage it because it allows for the greatest amount of back and forth and visualization between the doctor and the patient. It also is a logical stepping stone, right? If we're at a point in time earlier where medical boards were not comfortable or doctors weren't comfortable delivering care unless the patient is in person, the next closest approximation of that is interactive live audio video visualization between the two. But we have had medical practice and medical services delivered via asynchronous for decades. And a case in point is radiology. When is the last time when you get an x-ray or, or have your CT scan interpreted by a radiologist that you're physically in the same room with the radiologist when it's happening? 
Like never, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's totally clinically unnecessary. That's why you have radiologists sort of set up in command centers or working from home, going through thousands of image reads every day, right? So you can see how that's a one use case that people almost forget. Pathology is absolutely the same way. It can be a much more customer-focused experience, asynchronous telemedicine, because of the convenience. You do not need to do the scheduling of the song and dance between the, when is the doctor available Versus when is the patient available? Do they both have a quiet time and place that they can carve out and do this interactive audio-video communication? Instead, the patient can upload all the relevant medical information and make it available to the doctor on the patient's own time, hit submit, and then the doctor on his or her own time can take a look at that, analyze it, respond back to the patient. There's obviously always scenarios where it's appropriate to have that interactive communication, but not in every use case, right? Do you really think a dermatologist needs to speak to a patient in order for them to make an ABCD assessment on a high-resolution image of a mole or a skin blemish? I would think not. Certainly for the follow-up, right, and, and talking to the patient about here are the approaches for what we'd recommend in terms of intervention or treatment, yes. But on that front end for that diagnostic, I would think that many dermatologists are comfortable just doing the analysis based on the image alone. It's interesting because I had never really considered radiology, to your exact point, as telemedicine. But as you describe it, it it certainly is. And it's funny because my first thought was that asynchronous telemedicine kind of doesn't have any precedent for reimbursement. But of course it does. Right. And these are cross-country. You would have a hospital in the state of Florida. They have a contract with a radiology group. And the radiologists themselves are licensed in Florida, but they may be physically located anywhere in the United States and doing these reads and billing Medicare or the health plan. And that that is allowed. What are maybe some of the more interesting use cases? What have you seen that you find intriguing or bodes of the future? Sure. Well, I can mention a few. We've been talking about asynchronous, and so let's stick with that just for the moment. And one of the significant advantages I see of that is in the direct-to-consumer space and or coupled with retail health. Two examples. One would be in the vision space, and the other is in, let's say, something cosmetic like hair or skin care. For the vision, there are companies offering direct-to-consumer Um, refractions, which is an eye assessment for vision, right? And so you can have that performed via telemedicine through an app, and then a remote-based optometrist or ophthalmologist would actually look at the data and then determine the appropriateness of your prescription, and then your glasses or, or lenses or whatnot would be direct mailed to your house, all for a retail play. Another one, let's say hair loss, right? Men's hair loss, you can have an asynchronous direct to consumer platform where you fill in your medical history based on a dynamic questionnaire. Uh, You upload high-resolution images of your head, and then the physician can take a look at all of that data, determine whether or not you would be an appropriate candidate for Propecia or Minoxidil, as well as your relevant medical history. And if appropriate, then you can choose to purchase your prescriptions as well and have those mailed right to your house. Those are two examples of direct-to-consumer asynchronous medical services that are out there right now in the marketplace. There's ones for skincare. Curology is is the name of a company that does something similar with compounded skin medications. There's ones for direct-to-consumer at-home STD testing. There's ones for direct-to-consumer dermatology testing to see if a, a mole has hallmarks of being something malignant or not and if it would require a biopsy. 
So there are a multitude of examples, real-world companies using asynchronous telemedicine to drive their direct-to-consumer service offerings. And I can definitely see how that would maximize a clinician's time because you could queue up all of the incoming surveys or images and then the clinician on the other side could just kind of tick through them. Your listeners may say, that's great, Nate, but these seem to be a bit more medicine light, you know, which again, I would take issue with that. But let's say you want something more complex. Okay. How about online specialty opinions or second opinions, right? These are offered by some major academic medical centers in the United States that also serve as centers of destination medicine. The patient thinks they may have XYZ disease and they got an opinion, let's say, from their local treating physician. They thought, you know what? I'm not sure about this, right? So I want to go to the best in the, in the country. I want to go to the Mayo Clinics, the Johns Hopkins, the Mass General Hospitals, the MD Andersons of the world, right? But, but I don't want to fly out there. A number of these academic medical centers offer online telemedicine, you know, second opinions, which is a records-based review that subspecialist reviews all the medical records and images and charts, prepares a written opinion with treatment recommendations, sends that to the patient. By and large, those are paper-based chart records reviews, again, clinically appropriate and acceptable standard of care, and they offer them in states that allow it. And that is a way for an individual to have a second opinion on a highly complex, nuanced area of medicine. And if they like what that physician has to say, right, let's say it differs from the first opinion they got, then they can make arrangements to fly out across the country to be treated by that specialist. Is that typically paid for out of pocket by the patient? So those examples I, I gave are all direct to consumer, and I would distinguish that from institutional telemedicine contracts. For example, a tele-ICU arrangement, right, wherein you'd have an uh, entity like Mercy Virtual that delivers virtual ICU services to other hospitals and critical access hospitals, right, to exert oversight over the ICU operations acting as like a quarterback, so to speak. Are there any other notable, maybe, things which are going on that you find compelling? Sure. Another example of async that's not in the direct-to-consumer space, right, other than you could say radiology and pathology, but remote interpretive reads for, let's say, diabetic retinopathy. There are telemedicine companies that have B2B contracts with primary care offices or hospitals or health systems, wherein they will place a piece of eye scanning equipment in the PCP's office. So when the patient walks in there, they might be someone who should have their eyes examined for diabetic retinopathy risk, but there isn't an ophthalmologist on site. Right. And if you cross referred them, if the PCP referred them over to an ophthalmologist, they might go, they might not, there could be a significant wait time. Instead, what the, they'll say is, hey, you can put your eyes in here and visual it will take an image and then that'll be asynchronously sent to a remote-based ophthalmology group and they'll review those high-resolution images, which is a great way as an indicator for diabetes risk. It's a screening tool. It is very inexpensive in terms of like the overhead and, and, and onboarding to add that. And it's a high value for the patients because they're basically getting not just the general service, but then a specialist service while they're in the generalist's office with all they have to do is really take a 30 seconds or so and, and look into the device to have their eyes scanned. That is a great example of a high-value, asynchronous, medically complex B2B telemedicine arrangement. Yeah, and that I could see also would be a great way to help improve patient outcomes and quality. 
Right. And the health plans recognize that too. So there are health plans that will pay for that scenario. They'll not only will they pay the PCP for that E&M, right, the initial visit, they will also pay the PCP a little bit more because of the time it would take the PCP to tell the patient about this diabetic retinopathy service and help them with, you know, getting their eyes scanned. And then they'll also pay the remote-based ophthalmology group, right? So they're making three separate fee-for-service payments, but the health plans realize that this is still a significant cost savings because no one at a health plan wants their members to have untreated diabetes. It is their job to help provide access and quality care to their members. And B, if the person does have untreated or unchecked diabetes, it's only going to turn into a much more expensive medical spend later on. You brought up the payer. And one of the things that I do understand fairly well is that getting compensated for telemedicine is tough for a number of different reasons, which I would love for you to overview. I was thinking, though, that from an FFS standpoint, a fee-for-service standpoint, that it's much harder to get compensated than if it's pay-for-value, in which a healthcare organization themselves is determining exactly how to create patient outcomes at the uh, cost-effective price. And so, therefore, they're using telemedicine because they themselves have determined it's the best way to go. In your experience, this seems to be a good example of getting compensated for vis-a-vis FFS. Is this an outlier or is this pervasive or somewhere in between? (laughs) Uh, Sure. Good question. I I think it's fair to say that this would be more representative of an outlier payment situation today, although there's no reason why it could not be more pervasive if the providers were to approach the health plans with like a value prop. Like this example that I just gave you for the diabetic retinopathy didn't just arise out of thin air. The telemedicine company offering these reads had to think about it and and have a value play and then approach the health plans in collaboration with the PCPs who are hosting it. And so that would require some changes to their various participation agreements. But they did it. This is also being done presently the exact same model, but for dermatology reads in the geriatric population, because particularly in places like Arizona and Florida, where there's a lot of retirees and a lot of skin cancer. So the key to doing that is to approach the health plans with a value proposition, something that makes sense. The plans are fearful that under a fee-for-service model, offering widespread access to care via telemedicine will drive up utilization, right? And what that means is they're afraid that people will actually use it and they're going to actually get medical care because it'll be a lot easier and a lot more convenient, right? I've not seen any evidence that as a result of states passing a telehealth commercial insurance coverage law, which is a law that requires the health plans to cover telemedicine services in the same way they cover in person. I haven't seen any evidence that health plans have had to raise premiums or blame any premium increases based upon that law. What states are they? There's 36 states plus the District of Columbia that currently have these laws in effect. They vary. They're not all the same. Some are better than others. And of them, there's eight to nine states that require the health plan to pay to reimburse the physician the same amount, same reimbursement rate for a telemedicine service that they pay for the identical in-person service. And yet there's so many instances where it seems like people are not doing telemedicine because they cite some sort of payment concern. What's the hiccup there? 
If you are in a state that has a very poorly drafted or provider-unfriendly law for telehealth coverage, or you're in a state that doesn't have a law, odds are you're not going to enjoy any third-party health plan reimbursement of your telehealth services. And what is an example? Right. The only exception, like Florida. I live in Florida. We don't have a, a law uh, in Florida. So by and large, most of the health plans really don't cover anything. The only exceptions are thus, A, if you work for an employer and the employer has its own self-funded plan and they choose to cover telehealth services. And what's an example of a poorly written state telemedicine law that also is not likely to get any coverage? Oh, sure. That's a good one. So I usually do, I've done these presentations like hour long or, or even more uh, dissecting or doing an autopsy of different states, telehealth coverage laws and compare them. And one of the funniest, I think, is probably Michigan's. <laughs> it basically says, it, and, again, and again, think about this, the Michigan legislature, they debated a bill back and forth. They ultimately, the House and the Senate voted on an identical bill, sent it up to the governor, and the governor signed it. It became part of the insurance code, okay? Mm -hmm. And all it says is basically this, a, a health insurance plan in Michigan can cover telemedicine services if it wants to do so. <laughs> <laughs> That's very concise. <laughs> right. I can't imagine that was the initial draft of the bill. Right? That is clearly the result of a highly effective lobbying right, to change the nature or content of the bill. Otherwise, why would you pass that law? We have laws that say you cannot jaywalk. We don't have laws that say you may walk along the sidewalk or you may brush your teeth in the morning. So we don't. But when it comes to telemedicine, for some reason, people... Have asked for permission, right? Asked medical boards for permission, and so a number of them wait. Say, well, it doesn't say we can't do it, but it also doesn't say we can do it, and I'm not comfortable yet until that happens. And the funny part is with it with that Michigan coverage statute, it seems to have been the initial intent probably was to require Michigan-based health plans to uh, cover telehealth services, but at the end of the day, those teeth were removed from the bill. I've seen studies. And I am not sure where they came from at this juncture. So so take this for what it's worth. But where the cost of care really did go up because what people were doing was calling in, having a telemedicine appointment, but then still going to see the physician. So it kind of doubled the cost of care. I'm certainly not saying that the just going to see your physician two weeks later is equivalent care to getting the answer in the middle of the night that you're not having a heart attack or whatever it is. From a patient perspective, but from strictly a cost perspective, I have seen some information which suggested that the cost of care did go up. Well, there have been some questionable studies on both sides of the aisle, so to speak, where the sample size was small or how they defined telemedicine and costs was questionable. It's hard because as a tool, it's very difficult to isolate the cost and benefit of telemedicine services and say, this was attributable solely to the use of this technology as opposed to the other process improvements and care changes that are attendant to using that technology. Moreover, it's typically the more innovation-focused providers and hospitals that are using or have been using telemedicine. And so they're more likely than not to have other ways that are improving the care and quality of the services that they deliver. That being said, under any of these laws, these commercial telehealth insurance coverage laws, the utilization review remains the same. So if a service is medically unnecessary and it's delivered via telemedicine or in person, 
it's going to get denied by the health plan or it should get denied by the health plan, right? And if a service is duplicative, namely if the doctor saw the patient via telemedicine in the morning and did a consult and then the patient went in that afternoon and did the identical consult, that should be taken a look at from a utilization management perspective to determine whether or not that second consult really was medically necessary or if that was just part and parcel of the payment that the doctor would receive for that initial telemedicine consult. Now, if it's something different and, hey, I think I have this problem and then they come in for a specialty consult or whatnot, I, I could see the difference. Although a lot of what we're talking about here and sort of the difficulties that are associated with telemedicine and telemedicine reimbursement are very specifically FFS oriented. If we're talking about a pay for value situation and the health provider is picking up some risk here and has determined that they want to do follow up via telemedicine or whatever it is that they are doing, then obviously everything that we're saying doesn't matter because it's the health system's choice and they're using the vehicle which they feel is best. So do you feel that a lot of this rigmarole maybe around how, if, and when to reimburse FFS, especially given the move toward greater pay for value, this is kind of a short-term fix that's going to eventually not be relevant? Or is this for at least the foreseeable future going to be logistics that are going to need to be attended to? I think whether or not you agree philosophically with fee-for-service versus a risk-based contracting system for healthcare, I think everybody can agree that the shift from fee-for-service to risk-based care has not happened as fast as anyone anticipated it would happen. And certainly, uses of telemedicine and other digital health technologies, such as remote patient monitoring, have been obvious fit, low-hanging fruit for ACOs and other risk-based contracting, right, where, where the provider has a bit of a sandbox and can decide what they want to do with care as long as they meet certain access and quality standards, and then find ways to really deliver high value under that capitated model. Even today, we encourage a lot of our traditional provider clients, like you know, traditional physician groups and hospitals and health systems, to consider not just like a fee-for-service payment, but an add-on per member per month capitated payment under which they would deliver telemedicine services to the health plan's members. It's a way to offer telemedicine-based care without cannibalizing so significantly your existing revenue from in-person services and while figuring out how to transition from a pure encounter-based fee-for-service system to something that is more risk-based or, or value-based. And I think that a number of our providers who are doing that enjoy it. The problem is, if you just hear buzzwords of value-based care and risk-based contracting, have no idea actually how to do the actuarial forecasting and the utilization on your own end as a provider, you're going to be at a significant disadvantage. You won't know whether or not this particular contract provision, if you'll have enough money in reserve to, to actually deliver the care, you could wind up in the red or in the black. And surprisingly, few providers out there are really have their arms around the data enough to know. I think a lot of these risk-based contracting arrangements are made on optimistic bets rather than really digging deep into the data before they, they go live with such contract. Some of them hit and some of them don't. So what kinds of questions do you typically get 
asked? Like, is there kind of the quintessential question, you know, tech entrepreneur comes in or, or health system comes in and they really want to set up telemedicine? Like, what are the sticky points that they are fearful of? That's a good question. Uh, licensing. Invariably, everybody asks about licensing because they don't want to have licenses in all these states and they ask if there's a solution. And there really isn't. <laughs> I mean, there's there's ways to address it, but there's no supreme workaround or loophole that, that a, a number of these entrepreneurs are looking for, right? If you're delivering medical services, you should own it, right? There's ways to have clearing houses and get your licenses much easier. But if it's a service requiring you to have a license, you need to have a license. I think uh, in terms of Creating a valid doctor-patient relationship, like we talked about the modality, whether it's audio, video, or async, we get those questions a lot. A lot of reimbursement questions. Uh, what will Medicare cover? What will it not cover? When can I charge a, a patient, an insured patient, um, a cash or out-of-pocket for a particular service if it's covered or, or not? And then what I think are more paramount questions, but the, the potential clients don't typically call us with that at front of mind, are the fraud and abuse and uh, e-commerce, and I would I would include privacy in there too. They kind of tend to think if it's cash-only service, then you know these anti-kickback statutes, Stark and whatnot, don't apply. And that's true that if there's no federal health care program dollars involved, Stark and the federal anti-kickback statute uh, really aren't implicated. But there are state all-payer anti-kickback and patient brokering acts, which apply even to cash uh, self-pay arrangements. And it's the ease through which you can have cross-referral patterns. You know, let's say you're a telemedicine-based medical group, and then you can cross-refer the patient for, let's say, the labs that they need or diagnostics or ancillary equipment or supplies or the prescriptions. It has a high value and high user experience, but at the same time, you need to modulate and put some safeguards in there for the risk of patient steering and fraud and abuse, and you need to take a look at all those different B2B contractual arrangements or joint ventures or whatnot to make sure that those don't have a fee-splitting risk or anti-kickback statute risk or unpermitted rebates and whatnot, the behind-the-scenes stuff that is not allowed. And many traditional healthcare providers appreciate that because they've been in this space for decades. But a lot of the entrepreneurs may not be aware of it because they don't come from a healthcare background and that these laws and restrictions are totally run against the grain of what they learned in marketing or business school. And these restrictions typically are found in the healthcare industry as well as the defense and government uh, contracting industry. So unless they have a prior background in that, these may be foreign concepts to them. And so it takes a while for us to take these complex terms, make them simple, right? Get the clients to understand and appreciate them, and then be willing to utilize alternate solutions and structures. Uh, you can't just have everything, for example, be paid on a percentage basis. Oh, let's just split it 50-50 or 70-30. It doesn't work that way, by and large, in the healthcare industry. You can't steer a patient. So even if a, a patient is actually paying for the service, if during the course of that appointment, the patient is often referred to a particular network, that's considered patient steerage, and you can't do that. Well, I wouldn't go so far. The rubber hits the road on the specifics of any particular scenario. But one thing that is important to maintain, it's called freedom of choice. So for example, if you're a telemedicine a provider group and you do a consult with the patient, say, hey, I think you should have this particular antibiotic or medication, right? You need to give the patient at some point in time 
the freedom of choice to say, hey, do you have a preferred pharmacy of your own where you want me to send this prescription or do you want me to just send it to you, right? Or if not, there's a mail order pharmacy that we have an arrangement with, right, that we can send this to them and then they will fill it and have it shipped to your house. And if you give the patient that affirmative choice to do so, you know, they may choose that out of convenience, right? But you can't just compel them to use your own particular preferred pharmacy if they would otherwise need to be given that freedom of choice to identify their own. Got it. And anti-kickback usually kicks in when you are providing another entity with a service that they should be buying themselves. There's a actually... Oh, look, I know something about telemedicine law. I read an article recently about a clinic in Georgia or something, or maybe it was a pharmacy in Georgia with HIV and a health system that was some, you know, 80 or 100 miles away had installed actually telemedicine equipment in this one pharmacy. And they were very concerned about the fact that the other health system had purchased and installed this equipment as they were saying that that could potentially be a violation of anti-kickback. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> uh, so the, the kickback statute basically means you can't have quid pro quo. You can't give someone anything of value in exchange for them referring you patients or other healthcare program business, right? So, you know, Stacey, if you were to say, hey, I know a whole bunch of hospitals and Nate, you own a telemedicine company. If you're like, hey, Nate, every time I send over a patient to you to have a telemedicine consult, you'll give me $5, right? That is a, a, a kickback. Mm-hmm. Now, there's ways to structure these arrangements that meet safe harbors or are acceptable. Let's say you are a bona fide employee of my company. Uh, you're a sales rep. I pay you on a commission basis. That's allowed. There's a safe harbor for bona fide employment arrangements. Same thing wouldn't be said uh, under other types of arrangements. The thing you described with the HIV clinic was a recent OIG advisory opinion that came out about a week, a week and a half ago, uh, that the OIG, which is the government watchdog for the federal healthcare program, approved. They, they, they allowed it, wherein one entity gave the other free telemedicine equipment. But they identified a number of safeguards that they ultimately concluded the arrangement posed a low risk of fraud and abuse. Um, there's like four or five different points. I would encourage readers interested uh, just to pull up the advisory opinion in itself and and take a look at it. But it had to do with the niche type of services. Also, these were services designed to have people who had exposure to the HIV virus but who were not positive to have quick medicated-assisted treatment to make sure that they did not contract HIV. So, like, there's really good public policy reasons in support of that particular advisory opinion as well. And so, it's important to look at the specific facts in order to make uh, the decision because that's what you have to do in any fraud and abuse arrangement. If it doesn't meet a safe harbor, does not mean it's illegal. But what you need to do is look at the specific facts and circumstances and run them against prior OIG enforcement actions and advisory opinions to determine whether or not it's an acceptable level of risk or the arrangement would not propose a significant risk of fraud and abuse. Sounds complicated. Sounds like you've got some job security there, Nate. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. That's, that's definitely not the most fun part of my job, but it's an important part of the job. <laughs> So talk about what's going on with Medicare. There's been some moving and shaking over there. Could you just sort of summarize what's happening relative to Medicare and telemedicine? Sure. When the president signed that federal funding bill back in February or March, it had uh, some notable 
expansion to Medicare coverage of telehealth services. I would say pretty much Medicare is the stingiest payer or imposes the most amount of restrictions on telehealth services in order to uh, have them uh, be covered by the Medicare program. The patient must essentially be in a rural area um, and must also be located at one of eight uh, originating sites, which by and large are facilities. It's not the patient's home or workplace. And then only 10 types of practitioners can deliver the service. It must be real-time interactive audio video. And the, the service itself must be listed as an eligible telehealth-based service. So there's quite a number of restrictions. It's a fraction of a fraction of a percent of the total Medicare spend every year under the program. So it's quite small. What Congress did is make some notable expansions, and so we'll see starting in January 2019, all telestroke, whether it's in a rural area or an urban area, will be covered under the Medicare program, which is really good because people in cities get strokes too, (laughs) right? I mean, it just seems obvious. Uh, Another one which is not going to be subject to those restrictions anymore is uh, dialysis. Patients with ESRD, uh, their home will now be an eligible originating site for certain dialysis services, as well as independent dialysis facilities. This is an absolute game changer for those dialysis companies. Absolute. Uh, it has represents significant opportunities for them to do uh, a better job with patient care and convenience, as well as new opportunities to bill Medicare for these types of services. Historically, it has been only hospital-based dialysis treatment centers that were able to enjoy coverage as a telehealth originating site. In addition, Medicare Advantage plans, right, which is kind of like health insurance but for Medicare population, will be able to include telehealth services as part of their basic benefit package when they do their medical loss ratios. It's kind of a technical thing for the health plans, but when that rule changes, we will see a whole bunch of Medicare Advantage plans now offering much more widespread coverage of telehealth services to their members. The reason they don't do it right now is because it counts as an administrative spend. So it's in the same bucket as if they gave a free gym membership to uh, one of their members or just had administrative overhead and expenses. And there's some more changes for ACOs as well. But again, ACOs are they, they're kind of waivers or carve-outs to the traditional program. So that won't benefit as, as many um, patients or providers as these other changes. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you feel is important to mention? I think we got a lot of good things covered. The only other thing to keep an eye on is telemedicine prescribing of controlled substances. It's been a very hot issue within the industry lately and came to the forefront in particular when the president declared the opioid crisis to be a national emergency. So we are seeing a number of providers pushing back on some of these uh, older federal laws that would require an in-person exam before you can issue a prescription for controlled substances to a new patient and say, hey, there's a real need here for medication-assisted therapy, MAT, or substance uh, use disorder, SUD, particularly in patients, uh, people who live out in rural areas. They need access. There's a a huge shortage of uh, qualified psychiatrists, telemedicine or otherwise, as well as other substance abuse and mental health professionals. And using this technology can help leverage their footprint and make sure that folks in rural areas with uh, addiction and substance abuse disorders can have access to them and get the therapy they need. The DEA has been working on a proposed rule to change it. It hasn't come out yet. The U.S. Congress has indicated that they're tired of waiting, and there is a draft legislation out there now 
which if signed into law by the president, would essentially require the DEA to make these changes within 90 days of the date that the president signs the bill. So I, I think by the end of this year, we're likely to see some significant change, telemedicine prescribing of controlled substances at the federal level. Either the DEA itself will publish a proposed regulation, or Congress will pass this law that forces the DEA to do so. So if I am a payer provider or telemedicine entrepreneur who is looking to make sure I stay on the right side of the law, where could I go for more information, Nate, on your services? My website is foley.com. And so you go to foley.com slash telemedicine. That'll show you our team and publications. I have a blog too, which is called uh, healthcarelawtoday.com. Healthcarelawtoday.com. We have a multitude of articles on uh, healthcare law and business, but probably over 100 on telemedicine alone. I thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Nate. Thank you for having me. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week, the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.